0: Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. I want to introduce to you our next Pew to the Pulpit uh, victim. And so um, we have been doing in the summers a series called Pew to the Pulpit where we have, we've had an opportunity during one month to invite different men of the church to, um, to, to preach and to come up here and to share testimony. And so today we have Kerry uh, Banka, who's going to come up. And so I just want to pray over Kerry before, uh, before he speaks today. But Kerry, if you'll come on up. Now, when Kerry's very first Sunday, when, when the very first Sunday he was here happened to be a Sunday when another good friend of mine, Jeff Tim, was here. And they're both baldies. And it was great. It was perfect timing because I was like, how am I going to connect with this guy? He's a new guy. And uh, and the two bald guys got together and hit it off great. And Carrie has been here ever since. And Bonnie and uh, th- their family have been able to come as well. And so glad. Bonnie's part of the worship team. But, uh, but I'm so grateful for Carrie, for his friendship, but also for the word that he has today for Mercy Hill and for, for visitors. So let's just pray as Carrie opens the word for us. So Lord, we are grateful because we have a place that we can gather, a gathering house for believers to worship your name, to sing as loud as we want, to lift up you and your word, to sing that you're a good, good father, to sing about your love, and to hear about the love of Jesus for us, and that we can do that freely, God. We thank you for that. Pray for Carrie that you would just speak through him today, the things he's prepared. Lord, that you would just multiply those things in our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. That was Jeff Tim, by the way, that uh, greeted me. And it was during that break that we just had way back, the first Sunday that, that I came. And he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, hey, us ball guys need to stick together. So you never know when you open your mouth how God can use you. Seriously, because... You know, he, he wasn't just, it wasn't just a cute comment. He was opening his heart. He was opening his life. And little did we know how much in common we had uh, listening to the same Jesus rock music growing up in our faith. And uh, we're friends today. We went out for his 50th birthday the other day. And so I thank God for, for Jeff. Um, Pastor asked me when he asked me to share today, he said, You know what? I don't think I ever heard that near-drowning experience story that you have. So he said, you know, I'd like to hear that this morning. And, and then ironically, as I was preparing for this, it dawned on me that one week from today is the 40th anniversary of that experience in my life. So let's, uh, let's turn to the Word. John chapter 21. We are going to get to this scripture passage. We're going to go a roundabout way though. In John chapter 21, beginning with verse 18. I'm reading from the New American Standard uh, version of the Bible. So it may be a little different than what's up on the screen. Jesus says here to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, When you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this, he said, signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his uh, bosom at, at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that, the, that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? Now, you might have to bear with me a little bit this morning. Um, I've been dealing with some kind of throat thing ever since the night of the 4th of July. I've gone to the doctor. I've... I've gone through antibiotics, and uh, so I don't know exactly what it is, but uh, I'm pretty sure I'm not contagious. But um pastor did give me a couple of his anointed throat drops before the service, so I, t- I trust they're going to carry me through. But the 40th anniversary of my River Rapids accident on the middle branch of the Saniam River in, near Cascadia, Oregon, this was the summer of 1976, See, I was invited to spend that summer with my older brother, who's 10 years older than me. He was finishing up his master's degree at Oregon State University. And he said, Hey, how would you like to come out and uh, spend the summer, play on my softball team? And I said, Yeah, great, I'll be there. So I went out, playing on his softball team. And uh, he asked me the day before I was to fly home, What would you like to do? Actually, two days before. I was to fly home. What would you like to do your last day in Oregon? Now, two weeks previous to this, some guys from the softball team took me to the Saniam River to a place called High Rock. I want you to show a picture of High Rock. Um, And this is a 40-foot high rock. Now, these pictures are 40 years old. It's probably amazing I even still have them. So the picture quality is not that good, but you could see this rock, it's actually one rock on top of another, it looks like there, uh, 40 feet above the river, and these crazy guys were jumping off of this rock into the river. And I just stood by and watched them for a while. And I said to myself, there's no way I'm doing this. Because you could see the lower rock sticks out farther, and you actually had to make sure you jumped far enough out in the river that you didn't hit the lower rock coming down. And there was no way I was going to even try this until Jim Baumgartner's girlfriend did it. <laughs> and then my pride took over, and I myself had to prove my worth as a male. And I went ahead and jumped off of that rock. And uh, that's one of the sites on this river that I told my brother, I, I don't want to go to High Rock this last day. I just want to enjoy a peaceful float down the Saniam River. And there's a couple more pictures here of what that river looks like. Now, does that look like a river you could peacefully float down? You know, what was I thinking? I was 17 years old. I probably have never even heard the word rapid before or do what a rapid really was. And so this was the river, in my mind, as a city boy from Chicago, out in Oregon, for the first time, thinking I was going to float peacefully down. And actually, that's my older brother in the lower picture and that little like waterfall area it's about an eight nine foot drop that's where that's what i avoided the second time i was underwater i was able to pull myself up on a rock ledge just before that little waterfall right there but anyway uh it started like this so my brother said great let's do it so the day came he grabbed a big truck inner tube uh Forgot any life preservers, interestingly. And uh, we drove out to the Saniam River. We passed the uh, Forest Service office on the way. We did not stop to ask if it was even safe to float or raft down this river. Uh, because surely they would have been able to let us know that. Uh, my brother did do something that was reasonable. He saw a little cottage close to the river And uh, he knocked on the door, and somebody came to the door. I don't remember if it was a woman or a man, but he asked the person, are there any rapids between here and a mile up the river? And the answer was no. So my brother said, okay, great. So that was another big mistake, trusting the word of a stranger. So uh, we we drive the mile up the river, and... uh, we put the big truck inner tube in the river, and his wife Susie, and I got on the big truck inner tube and uh, we are ready to start floating down the river. but now their identical twin four year old daughters were with us, and one of them was begging, "Can I go can I go on the inner tube and probably the only good decision we made was not to allow that because um that would have been very tragic so The river at that point did look like a peaceful river. It had a sandy river bottom. And, uh, you know, it looked like, okay, this is exactly what I had in mind to do. So we start floating down, Susie and I. And shortly up ahead was a bend in the river. And as we approached the bend, I started hearing a noise that I did not know what it was. And before I could figure out what it was, it was too late Because we came around the bend. We got sucked into rapids. That sandy bottom river became a rocked canyon with 30-foot high walls, big boulders in the middle of the river. And I immediately was thrown off of the inner tube and uh, began acting like a rubber ball against the rock walls, against the boulders in the middle of the river. And um, just trying to fight for my life. And I'm underwater. uh, And then just taking all of these, these hits from the rocks, from the walls, trying to get to the surface. And just as I was almost completely out of air, my head came up, but I was under the inner tubes. Amazingly, she was still above me uh, on the inner tube. So I instinctively jutted out a little bit, broke the surface, gulped some air. She had her hand reaching out for me. I was so dazed. I never even saw her hand, and I was then sucked back underwater. And later she told me, she says, When I saw you go back under, I said to myself, I will never see you again. So, second time I'm underwater, same things happening, the rubber ball experience all over again. And this time I could see the sunlight hitting the surface of the river, but I wasn't getting there. And I'm fighting, and I'm fighting, and I'm fighting. And the amazing thing was, and this is the miracle of it all, that if I would have hit my head against any of the rock walls, any of the boulders, I would never have been able to fight this river. So that that was a miracle. Um, so God's guardian angels were at work there. And so I'm completely out of air again. My head breaks the surface. I gulp some more air, but my body was... Uh, my, I was facing backwards. My back was facing downriver. So I turned to see what was going to be ahead of me, and there was a, that was when I, I spotted the rock ledge jutting out into the river, and I lunged for it, and I pulled myself up on that rock ledge. But then I experienced a frantic moment at that point um, because I had no idea where Susie was. And I started screaming her name, yelling her name, And I'm thinking to myself, my brother's going to kill me if she's drowned. So I'm yelling, Susie, Susie, Susie. And just as I was about to jump back into the river to see if I could find her, she popped her head up from these rocks. I mean, a split second before I was ready to jump back into the river. Now, that was another crucial, amazing point, because if she hadn't done that, at that very point, I would have lost my life because I did not have the energy to fight the river again. But I was feeling so desperate of the thought of losing her, I felt like I had no choice. But thank God she she popped her head up at at the last split second, and, it, and then I didn't have to jump back into the river. And earlier this week, I, I called Susie. And I said, you realize it's the 40th anniversary? <laughs> And she said, no, I didn't realize that. I said, I have one question for you. How did you scale that 30-foot rock wall? And I never heard this from her before. She said, I had to act like a bear. I had to spread my, my arms and hands and feet out and hug the wall and, and, and reach for whatever toe holds I could find and whatever little ledges I could find to lift myself up. Now... If she hadn't have done that, I would not be here today. So God had to give her the presence of mind to do that. So anyway, to make the long story short, um, I started yelling for help. A man was in a lumber mill tower a little ways down the river, and being in that canyon, um, he must have heard the, the, you know, the echo of my voice, so he, he spotted me, and he came opposite me in the river, and Susie was able to finish scaling that wall, got behind me, he threw a rope across the river, she tied it to a tree, threw it down into the hole that I was in, and I had to pull myself up that 30-foot-high rock wall. I got halfway up and got a charley horse in my side, and I fell back down into the river, but fortunately I held on to the rope. And that's when you know I got... That second win, as they say, and, and with whatever adrenaline I had left in my body, I was able to pull myself up uh, the rest of the way and got out of that hole that I was in and got to got safety. Now, this experience can be summed up in four words: naivety, stupidity, negligence on our parts, but mercy. On God's part but you know the three stooges couldn't have botched this float trip more than we did and you know we might as well have written acme float trips on our inner tube because you know for you for you that don't know everything the stooges did or you know it was acme you know everything they were a part of was acme so uh seriously but God who is rich in mercy you know, saved us from our blunders, from this wild, crazy, mindless thing that we attempted to do. And as only he could do, he turned this nightmare-worst experience of my life into the best day of my life because later on that night, Susie led me to the Lord. Because shortly before this experience, she found salvation herself. So after coming a split second from death, And not having the assurance of going to heaven if I would have died. In fact, I had the fear I wasn't ready. I wasn't going to make it. I had to know why. I had gone to church my whole life. My father took us to a particular Protestant church. I was baptized as an infant. I was an alkalite. I lit those candles. I extinguished those candles after the service. I was in the church youth group. I did fundraisers. I put my $2 in the offering plate. Why didn't I know where I was going? Well, Susie later that day gave me the answer to that question, telling me that I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I wasn't born again. I didn't have him in my heart. I, I worshiped him, him on Sunday. I paid homage to him on Sunday, but I didn't really have him in my heart. He, he hadn't taken up residence in my heart in my life. And I never heard the true gospel in that church, and I certainly never heard anything about lordship. So I'm so thankful that God is a God of second chances. And now, and by the way, I want you to show a picture. Oh, there she is right there. That's Susie. And I believe it was the twin on the right, um, Carrie, that, who, who's not named after me, by the way, but anyway... Uh, Because we saw how much my brother cares about me, right? Um, But anyway, that's a picture of me after the experience. So now notice, I'm not sitting up with a smile on my face. You know, I am totally wasted looking in that picture. I look like I had just been through something and I told Brett, you know, this picture came through the scanner crooked, but that's how I felt at the time. I felt pretty slanted at the time. But now as we head back toward the scripture passage this morning that we read, I, I want to tell you another River story because I promise you that this goes right along with the scripture passage that we read. And it's the story of Dave Reaver. Dave Reaver is an evangelist and an inspirational speaker. Dave went to Vietnam. You already know something bad's going to happen, right? And he became a, a member of the Brownwater Black Berets. And one day while on a patrol boat on the river, he saw a a high grassy area and he decided he was going to throw a phosphorus grenade there to take out that that high grassy area so the enemy couldn't hide in it. So he grabbed the grenade. he he, He had it cocked back. He was ready to throw it forward. It was six inches from his face and a sniper's bullet hit the grenade. And instantly... As it exploded, he lost the flesh on the right side of his face, from his head, right down the right side of his face. His right ear was blown off, all the way down to the bone. And as he explains, uh, phosphorus, uh, it burns white hot at 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And as he was blown into the water, he was still burning. Fifty percent of his body had third-degree burns. And um, he said the force of the explosion just caused it to penetrate his body to the extent that two weeks afterwards, he was still burning inside. In fact, he said when they opened him up on the table to do a procedure, he burst into flames because the oxygen you know, hit the phosphorus that was still impaled into his body. Somehow, and he said that he remained conscious through the whole ordeal, somehow he managed to wash up on the shore of that river. And as they came looking for any survivors, they came upon his body, and they presumed him to be dead. And so they stuck his dog tags between his teeth, and as they did that, he was able to mutter, Help me. So after being flown to a hospital in Japan and making the mistake, after they did a couple of procedures to save his life, of asking for a mirror... Um, he realized he was unrecognizable. Well, you can imagine with the right side of his face down to the bone, he said the left side of his face was so terribly swollen, way out to here. In no way, shape, or form did he look like himself. So he decided, as he anticipated the rejection that he was going to experience, beginning with his wife, he decided to take his life. So after everybody left his hospital room, He pulled his tube out, and he waited. And after a while, all that happened was he got hungry. He pulled his feeding tube out. So that didn't work. So he had no choice but to face that experience of having his wife come and see him for the first time in the hospital. And you see, he had watched as men's wives would walk into that burn unit And they would take a look at their husbands. And they would take off their wedding wedding rings and toss them on uh, the bed and walk out. And in fact, um, the day that he was supposed to see his wife, it had just happened like that. A guy's wife walked in, took a look at her husband, and said these words. You're embarrassing. I couldn't walk down the street with you. Took off her wedding rings, tossed them on the bed, and walked out. When he witnessed that, he said to himself, I'm killing myself. I'm not going to face that rejection. But unfortunately, he didn't have time to do that because seconds later, his wife walked in. His 19-year-old bride, Brenda, walked in in a miniskirt. He said instantly he felt the will to live again. (laughs) Now, when she walked in, she came over to his bed, she, and this is going to be the hard part <laughs> she leaned over, kissed what was left to his face, and said to him, "I love you, Davy. Welcome home." He responded back to her, "How could you ever love me?" She paused for a second and said, "Davy, you weren't that great looking to begin with." <laughs> Go ahead and show a picture of Dave as he looks today. Isn't that amazing? That he could look that good after what he described going through? He has impacted thousands of lives with his story of survival and endurance and with the gospel of Christ. But what really caught my attention was when he said this. He said, people confuse these two words. Destination. Destination. And destiny. He said, destination is where I'm going. Destiny is how I go about getting there. He said, when that sniper's bullet hit that phosphorus grenade in my hand, my destiny was shaped at that very instant. Now to this scripture passage that we read. Because Jesus here was talking to Peter about his destiny. In verses 21, 18, and 19, Jesus was making Peter's destiny known to him at that moment. And he was disclosing to him here that he was going to have to die a martyr's death. A little unsettling to Peter, I'm sure. But surely he had to know that he was gonna, his confession of faith in Jesus Christ was gonna be put on the line again especially considering that Jesus had just given him what's called the love motivation challenge in verses 15 through 17. Let's look at those verses. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. So let's look at this. In verse 15, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, my study Bible said that this could mean that phrase, more than these, one of three things. First of all, it could mean more than you more than you love these men, the disciples that were before them. Or secondly, it could mean more than these men love me. Or thirdly, more than you love these things. Referring to um, Jesus' uh, uh, fishing boat and and his fishing equipment that was there because, uh, not Jesus, Peter's boat and uh, fishing equipment that was there because Jesus had just performed the great catch miracle. And so the boat was there, the fishing uh, supplies were there, so Jesus made a reference to them. But it suggested, however... That it's the second scenario that fits the best. Do you love me more than these men love me? As Peter had claimed a devotion to Christ above all the other disciples. Now the first two times Jesus asked Peter here if he loved him, he used the Greek word for love, agapaho, which refers to an unconditional love, a complete love one in which the entire personality, including the will, is involved. Now, Peter answers all three times to this question from Jesus of whether he loved him, where he says, you know I love you, with a totally different word for love, or verb for love, phileo, which refers to spontaneous natural affection or fondness, in which emotion plays a prominent role rather than will. So essentially, Jesus here is asking Peter, do you love me with the deepest kind of love, the self-sacrificing kind of love, with your entire will? And Peter is actually responding back to him in this manner. You know how fond I am of you, Jesus? You know how much I feel a friendship with you? You know how I enjoy hanging out with you? In today's jargon... Peter is telling Jesus, you're my homie. You're my bro. I enjoy kicking it with you anytime. Now, wait a minute. What? Is there not a disconnect here? How is Peter not getting what Jesus is actually saying here? Or did he simply not pay attention in vocabulary class? And thus he does not know this agapaho word for love he appears to still not be grasping the the agape love that Jesus is talking about, which is clearly a different kind of love than what he had in his mind. Now notice this. Jesus makes a shift the third time he asks Peter, do you love me? He uses the phileo word for love, brotherly love, as if to say to Peter, do you merely love me with this type of love? A simple fondness? that you like the kind of person I am, that you like hanging out with me, you see me as just one of the bros? So when he put it to Peter this way, it had to deeply humble him. It had to truly rock his boat, no pun intended. Jesus is trying to get across to Peter here that if you're going to feed my sheep, if you're going to tend my lambs, the rest of your life is going to take more than phileo love. It's going to take agape love because with phileo love, you deny the Lord three times as as Peter previously did. But with agape love, you lay down your life for him. You become a martyr if necessary. You embrace your destiny. So this was lesson one from Jesus here. Then we see in verse 20, after he just explained to Peter what manner of death he would glorify God, which was his destiny, that Peter turns around and sees the disciple John following them. And he says, what about this guy? What's going to happen with him? Jesus sharply corrects him and says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus was saying, don't be concerned about what's in store for John. My plan for for you is to follow me. When we start looking at what's going on in other people's lives, we distract from God's destiny in our own life. Jesus did not want this to happen in Peter's life. He did not want Peter to make this mistake. Peter had just been given the ta- the great task the rest of his life, ten Jesus' sheep, ten his lambs, and Jesus did not want him to be distracted from that task. Now, have you ever noticed that normally when we compare our lives to the lives of others, we're not, we're not looking at the suffering, suffering that they're going through Asking God, why can't I experience that suffering like they are? You know, is that how it is with us, really? It's never like that usually, is it? So, no, we become envious of what is positive or attractive that's going on in their lives. And when we do that, we start to lose focus of our own destiny, the plan that God has for us. No doubt that is what was happening with Peter here. He took a look at John and he thought to himself, after Jesus Jesus had just told him that he was going to have to suffer the fate of a martyr himself, and Peter says, hey, well, what's going to happen to this guy? Is he just going to enjoy a peaceful life, have a wonderful retirement, and then just walk off into the sunset? So we see here the envy that Peter had toward John. It is somewhat apparent here. Now, I've done this, but I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to be like Peter here. It's a waste of time, and it could possibly keep me from fulfilling God's chosen destiny in my life. Due to be being hung up and envious on the positive things that's going on in people's lives around me, whether it's they're Christian or not Christian, doesn't matter. We're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, but not weep and, and get hung up on what other people are rejoicing about because we're not experiencing that. I appreciate Matt last Sunday taking us into the bowels of his and Ladera's suffering concerning Rex. But I clearly didn't expect him to to reveal to us that in the midst of that suffering, hey, we found God's destiny for us. We're going to uh, adopt a child with congenital nevus, just like Rex, in fact, from China. And you that were here last Sunday hearing this, your mind's probably going, say what? You're going to do what? And you might have been thinking to yourself, how do you do this? Well, you don't do do this without embracing God's destiny for your life. And you don't do this without agape love. So I ask you this morning, what type of love are you serving the Lord Jesus Christ with this morning? Is it agape love? Or is it phileo? I hope it's agape because if it's phileo, You're going to have a hard time making the sacrifices and the commitments that Jesus is going to ask you to make. And you're going to have a hard time enduring the suffering that He is going to ask you to go through because our faith is tested through suffering. That's clearly the lesson that Jesus was teaching Peter in this passage of Scripture that we read this morning. And... As we heard once again this morning, uh, something about Tim and Liz, and the the ongoing suffering that they've been going through for the last couple of years, it, it makes me think of that Stephen Curtis Chapman song that says, "When you think you've hit the bottom, and the bottom falls through," because that's the way it's been for them the last couple of years. So, if you want an example of of how to maintain your agape love, In the face of suffering, and maintain your focus on God's destiny in your life, talk to Tim and Liz. Because he's still here acting as an elder of this church. They're both acting as Life Share group leaders. And Liz is a prayer warrior. Anytime somebody has a prayer need, they call Liz, and the texts start flying like I did when my twin sister called me this week and had a need. I knew the first person to turn to was Liz. So if 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 you struggle in your faith, if you struggle to keep God's love in your heart, if you struggle to stay committed, if you struggle in the midst of your suffering to endure with your faith, talk to Tim and Liz talk to Matt and Ladera. Thank you for listening this morning.
0: So as Brooke and the team come forward, we're going to have a chance to respond in in worship to the message today. Um, I just want to close with this. T- um, we were able to get together, Carrie and I were able to get together earlier this week and just talk a little bit about agape and phileo love and the different kinds of love that are in the Bible. And um, so, Carrie, I didn't know he was going to say those things about us near the end, but, but one of the things he and I talked about is how do we make the jump from natural love There's, there's, the the Bible talks about natural sort of eros, which is sexual love and a natural sort of love. And then it talks about phileo, which is the brotherly love. These are things that are produced, they're sort of natural there. They're just there. But how do we as a church or as someone, if you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus, how do we make this jump from phileo, the natural loves, to agape love, especially When I think about guys that come to church, any church across the nation, we tend to hear the word love, and we tend to minimize love, and we tend to think church is very much for females and the love stuff, and it's a love fest, and I can't wait to get out. And yet, that's not the kind of love that we're talking about here. The kind of love we're talking about is for men and women Alike, Agape love is the most manly kind of love there is. And it was demonstrated through Jesus. So we're going to respond in, in song in just a minute. But this is just in closing. Very, very brief. I just want to share this with you. Written about agape love for the community of believers. It says this. The most powerful recommendation for any church is this. That the members love one another The world pines for this and flocks where it's found. And when the unchurched are asked where they're looking for a church, their their answer is always the same. They are looking for a caring, a, a loving church. Not just a friendly church or a relevant church or a church with plenty of programs for the kids or even a church that's politically correct. Not just a church where the Bible is clearly taught, but that's very important. It's good and essential. But they don't touch the deepest heart cry of this generation. They want to be truly loved and deeply loved. And when the people of the world find such a place, they stand in line to get in. God's love is a supernatural love that is poured into our hearts the moment that we invite Jesus into our lives as Lord of our lives and the lover of our hearts. It's God himself who comes into our hearts at that moment. And then he is that love Agape love is not a thing, it's a person. One of the reasons so many of us have had problems finding real love is that we have been looking in all the wrong places. I will not sing the song at this moment. Rather than looking for the author of real love, we've been looking horizontally to our spouses and our families and our friends and our relatives to meet the need for love, and they're simply not able to do so. God's love, agape love, therefore, is not human love but in fact is completely opposite. Our natural human love, the love we were born with, will always be conditional and dependent upon three things. How we feel, as Joanne said, our circumstances, and how the other person responds to us. That's natural love, that's conditional love. In other words, natural love will always seek the good of itself and not the other person. So as we come today, how do we make the jump We don't make it on our own. We make faithful choices when we have received the very author of love, agape kind of love, different love than the world, when he lives in our hearts, when he lives within us. We have access, men and women alike, to agape love in our lives. And that's the beginning of our life here, and it's the beginning of our life with each other. The church was prompted toward agape love for each other. And that reality is a shining light in the world of people who are lost.